This is the cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Folks, today is a big day here at Bloomberg. And over the next hour, we're going to draw attention to it. What we have launched today here at Bloomberg is Bloomberg UK, a much more focused service designed for customers in the UK interested in the UK. I'm going to quote our editor-in-chief here, John Micklethwaite, talking about this a little bit earlier on, because I want to lay out kind of where we're going with this. Our goal is to become the main destination for business and financial news in Britain. As you would expect, says John, we're going to have plenty of coverage of the financial world, but we're also going to widen our lens. We're going to go beyond the city. We're going to chart the future of British business in all its forms, telling the story of new industries and startups that are reshaping post-Brexit Britain. We're also, of course, going to be covering the big beasts of the FTSE 100. But basically, we've got a great team lined up. We've got an award-winning team down in Westminster. We've got Bloomberg Economics. Uh, and we've got thousands of journalists that are going to cover every aspect of what is happening here in the UK. And what we're going to do, Alex, over the next hour or so is bring some of the the, the first stories that we're bringing to this service. We've got a great story on levelling up. We've got a great story on where the overlap lies uh, between the UK and uh, the European Union post-Brexit. And all of this on a day when we've seen GDP data basically signalling that the UK is looking at stagnation or even stagflation. So there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, I'm sort of the interloper American who's going to hang out and talk about a lot of UK things. That's basically going to be my job for today. And I'm looking Excellent. forward to it. You, you will do it well. I, I look forward to, to your contribution <laughs> from all the way over there in New York. Also, all the way over there in New York is Charlie Pellet. Let's bring him in as well. Let's get an update on the headlines. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Truly an exciting day for Bloomberg News. And in honor of our UK super launch, let us begin with the UK economy. As you alluded to, it unexpectedly contracted in March as the cost of living squeeze forced consumers to cut back on spending, throwing doubt on the Bank of England's ability to keep hiking rates and piling pressure on Prime Minister Johnson's government to respond. The Office for National Statistics said gross domestic product fell not 0.1% from February when growth was flat. Germany says Russia is using energy as a weapon after Moscow reduced natural gas supplies in retaliation for Europe's penalties over the war in Ukraine. A unit of Gazprom that was seized by Germany has had its deliveries reduced by about 10 million cubic meters a day, this according to Germany's economy minister. An employment tribunal in England has ruled that calling a male colleague bald isn't harmless banter, but sexual harassment, the all-male three-member panel, concluded that using the word could be, quote, inherently related to sex and amount to a form of discrimination. That decision coming in the case of an electrician, uh, Tony Finn, who sued a small Yorkshire-based family business where he had worked for nearly 24 years for unfair dismissal and sexual harassment. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet. 
Thank you very much indeed. So let's kick off our coverage on this day that we launch our focused UK service. Um, one of the, uh, the centrepieces of this has been some fantastic research, Alex, that has been done into the levelling up programme that Boris Johnson promised us two years ago. Now, in the meantime, we've obviously had the pandemic. Uh, in the meantime, obviously, we've had this huge global inflation story ripping through global markets and economies. But Boris Johnson still has this at the core of his government's objectives. The question is, how is levelling up going? Are we levelling up or are we levelling down? Joe Mays is one of the guys that uh, brought us this. Uh, Andre Tata, uh, Dimitris Poglas, uh, also joining us uh, as well in this fantastic coverage. But Joe's here in the studio this evening. Joe, Boris Johnson promised to level up. We're two years into the programme. Where are we? So we're in a situation where most of the UK has fallen further behind the wealthier region of London and the South East. So we've effectively gone backwards on 12 important socioeconomic metrics. We looked at things like pay, investment, productivity, well-being, housing affordability. And when we looked across all those constituencies, yes, we saw a widening gap, which shows that Johnson has gone backwards since 2019 on his big flagship promise. It, I just have to say, it was an amazing piece of work. I mean, the research that you guys did to get into this was truly amazing. And visually, it truly highlighted the gaps uh, in UK society. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the data, like what areas are most hurt um, regionally, but also is it affordability of housing? Is it salaries? Like where are we seeing the least leveling up? Yeah, so salaries is definitely one of the poorest performing metrics. We find nine out of 10 constituencies have found their salary gap with London and the Southeast widened since 2019. We saw housing affordability worsen in every region of uh, the UK, apart from London. Uh, so those are two massive ones. I think that we also saw government spending on transportation and also public services. We saw London and the Southeast continue to kind of steam ahead versus the rest of the country. And that, that, that's a lever that the government could directly pull to achieve levelling up, but it hasn't done so at the pace at which you'd expect. So that's something they'd, they'd want to definitely to improve on. There have been other things going on in the meantime. Um, I, we are two years into, into this process. Trying to change an economy in two years is a fairly difficult job. It took Margaret Thatcher a long time to completely reform the supply side kind of economics uh, that she wanted to push through. We've had a pandemic in the meantime. Boris Johnson has been A, ill, B, distracted. Is it fair to criticise the fact that we haven't seen that much progress? I think it's fair to look at what the plan is and whether the plan is putting the UK on the right track. And I think that what we're finding is that there isn't much confidence that that is the case, that we there isn't confidence that there's the level of in investments on the financial side where there's the level of political will, really, to completely reorientate UK society and how power works away from Whitehall and Westminster. Mm -hmm. So we've had the, the levelling up white paper, which is the policy plan, but it doesn't feel like at least what experts say to us, it doesn't feel like that's radical enough to overturn what is decades of underinvestment outside of London and the southeast. It would take a massive reorientation and it doesn't feel like we're seeing that. So is it the amount of money needs to be changed? Is it where it goes and then people actually distributing it in an efficient way? Is it local regions asking for the right things? Like what is it specifically? Yes, it's, it's all of the above. And not only is it 
funding. It's the broader metrics, things like crime, for example. So when I was reporting this story last week out and about in the regions, so many places would talk about how the issue of crime meant that, for example, they didn't come shopping in the town centre because they were too worried for their own safety, which has a knock-on economic effect. And one of the public policy experts who talked to me for this story said, you will only achieve levelling up if all of the metrics are kind of simultaneously rising. It's not good enough to just have an improved local council or to just have crime falling in the area. If you're not improving on all parts of the picture, then you're not going to feel a meaningful sense of your area getting better. So that's why this is such a challenge for this government and why I think our data is uh, quite, quite concerning. Put the Brexit overlay on top of this for me. What impact has it had? So two big things. So one is that it's an economic headwind in the form of the trade barriers created by leaving the European Union. Office for Budget Responsibility says there's going to be a 4% reduction in long-run UK productivity because of Brexit. So that's a problem. But then also the European Union had regional funding that it was giving out across the UK. And the government's been criticised for not matching that EU funding with its new what's called a shared prosperity fund. So there's a kind of double effect there where it's certainly not helping the levelling up cause. Is that supposed to get worse now? Aren't we like in a potential Brexit 12.0 or something? Well, yes. <laughs> we are once again on the brink of a diplomatic crisis between the UK and the EU, which could send into a trade war because of the situation in Northern Ireland. And yeah, that, that's got increasingly forced in the last couple of days. And we look like Johnson is moving towards, yes, tearing up the Northern Ireland protocol, which could lead to that retaliation from the EU of tariffs uh, and a trade war. So it could get even worse. In terms of what happens next, we've had the Queen's speech or Prince Charles delivering the Queen's speech. What do we learn in terms of the agenda that may put this process back on track? So the clearest policy from the Queen's speech on levelling up was a move to force holders of commercial property in town centres to rent out their properties because boarded up shop fronts is a very common scene in the deprived regions of the UK and the government wants to avert that. So that, that, that looks promising. But apart from that concrete policy, it wasn't clear that we were getting anything like the kind of radical action yep. which our data shows would be required. So it's a lot to do and recognise the economic picture, high inflation, uh, the Chancellor very worried about the debt levels that the UK has, not really willing to spend aggressively at this point in time. So, yeah, the pitch is really, really tough. Wait, can we just go back for that for a second? You force someone to rent out their storefront? Yes, so it's basically not allowing commercial property holders to simply wait for someone to come along and be willing to pay a high rent for their property and say, no, no, you have to rent this out. We're going to kind of essentially force an auction on you and therefore we'll get these shops filled. In some ways, it's a bit like huh. New York and the kind of sort of broken window stuff. You, you boarding up uh, of properties sends the wrong signal. What do we know about what Labour would do? What would the opposition parties do differently? That's a great question. And Labour, at this point in time, do- hasn't really set out a policy platform. So that undermines its ability to criticise the government. I mean, I think in broad strokes, they would say they would invest more and so on, without yeah. being specific on detail so yes not too clear what Labour would do instead. So I have a similar question on that and I'm, I'm, I'm bringing my American observer voice to to this question so if this was sort of a scenario in the US you would have had partisan politics like all over this like it would be you'd already two years and you already be talking about elections and it would be already used as a political football um, and nothing would really get done because you're looking two years into an election cycle how does that work in the UK that's different or the same? 
So I think the reason why this hasn't become such a political football so far in the UK is that Boris Johnson's administration has been so distracted by all these other issues that have been hitting him, whether it's the Partygate scandal, you know, admittedly the Russia's war in Ukraine has taken up a lot of headspace for the UK government. But I think that in the next couple of years, in the lead up to the next general election, this will become an increasingly central question. And hopefully our reporting will help inform you know, the national debates about how well yeah. has Boris Johnson done. Where do you take this data next? So we are going to do a specific report on the red wall next week. So look out for yep. that, which shows exactly which seats have done worse. And these are the seats Johnson has to retain if he's going to stay in power. But then also we will update the data series on a regular basis. Every time we get new salaries data, every time we get new house price data. And, and nobody else has done this. This is, so this this is, is the is first of its kind that has constituency level granular data, the 12 metrics, a holistic picture of levelling up. Yeah, we're the first. And when you, when you ask government about, when you took the data to government, what feedback did you, did you get from government number 10, number 11? So we directly consulted with the government in the course of reporting the project. We said to them, here are the metrics we're going to track. What do you make of them? What, what suggestions would you make? And we went to the government's own levelling up white paper and the own missions it set itself and used those metrics that they were identifying to ensure that we are really you know, fairly accounting for, for the levelling up project. So they essentially agreed that, yes, these, these are the right metrics have to you, be looking at. Have you and, shared uh, with them yeah. your findings? Yes, we have, obviously, since the story came out. And they effectively just conceded the whole story and said, these findings show the importance of the need for levelling up post-COVID. So there wasn't really a pushback on the story. They accept that this is the picture and they need to do a lot more to, to fix the situation. Was there any reflection of this in the local elections? So the local elections showed us that... In the south of the UK, Boris Johnson is doing pretty poorly and lost lots of seats to the Liberal Democrats. And that's that's been in the narrative explained as related to the Partygate scandal and a public upset at how that's gone. In the Red Wall, the more yep. northern seats, we see, again, the Conservatives did pretty, pretty poorly. You know, Labour was defending lots of councils and managed to hold most of them. So that speaks to the idea that, you know, all that, that big surge Johnson got on the Red Wall, you know, wasn't really clearly replicated this time around, which suggests that maybe some voters have turned off, turned off Johnson since 2019. And that would speak to what our data shows, which is that their areas haven't necessarily improved. If anything, the gap's widened with London. So maybe they're thinking, well, that wasn't really worth it, was it? Yeah, I thought you guys were supposed to be like, the good example for the rest of the world in this experiment to see if like leveling up and like getting rid of this trade deal with the UK if that could all work. Come on, guys, what are you doing? Well, yeah, I think what we've seen not is not very a, much. I yeah, think, to be apparently not. <laughs> good we're enough. talking a lot about it, but whether it's actually happening, as we're showing, it's uh, yeah, not Joe, quite. Great stuff. I really enjoyed the read, uh, and I think this is, is such a useful starting point really to understand how this is going to happen or not happen uh, really useful to see kind of where we are now and where we need to go joe mays uh, boris johnson's flagship plan to fix britain is in trouble you can find it uh, on our new website um, the bloomberg.com forward slash uk the dedicated service uh, that we are now providing to the uk uh, coming up next we'll talk about where brexit has taken us in terms of our relationships uh, with the eu uh, and how the Ukrainian conflict has changed that. Therese Raphael will be joining us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. As I've already said, a special day here at Bloomberg 
as we launch our dedicated UK service. There are some fantastic articles you can find on the website. One of them put together by Therese Raphael uh, and Marcus Ashworth, the title of which is the UK and the EU have two common enemies now. It's basically uh, a pricey of a conversation uh, that the two had with Johan van der Overveld. I think I may have just mispronounced that, but Therese can correct me. Basically, he's a former Belgian finance minister talking about how post-Brexit, the relationship uh, has changed between the UK and the EU and how the Ukrainian conflict is now changing uh, that in a different way. Therese, thank you for joining us. Look, you had this, this fantastic conversation and, and I'm wondering what the main takeaways are from it, how the Ukrainian conflict is putting the UK back really at the centre of European politics. Well, that was just one aspect of the conversation, but I found it really interesting that he was recounting, um, and, it was, and it was, this was a very broad-reaching uh, conversation that covered monetary policy and various things. But from his perspective at the European Parliament, and of course he still uh, speaks to um, you know, officials from many countries, he said that really in the, in, in the past few weeks, he had seen the atmosphere very much change between Europe and the UK. Um, he thought that uh, the war in Ukraine had made everyone realize that um, a lot of the Brexit issues were, you know, quite petty. Um, and uh, he thought that there was, you know, that, that they would have to find ways to cooperate and the geopolitical situation dictated it. I went to him after, because we, we recorded this before the Northern Ireland Protocol blew up, yeah. <laughs> blew mm -hmm. up again in, in the last couple of days. I went back to him and I said, you know, do you want to, do you want to add anything to that? Um, do you still think that, uh, that, that things are improving? And he didn't want to change anything. So, so um, I think that that's an interesting well, know, that, that was my point, Therese, I wanted to ask. Is it possible for Europe and the UK to still be combative on trade, but work together on something like Ukraine? Like, is that something that can realistically be done? Yes. Yeah, so on one level, absolutely. They are partners in uh, in NATO. The security sphere is, is completely, I think, uh, one in which Britain and Europe are totally united. Um, that's, there's no question that, that tensions on trade, and especially Northern Ireland, have spillover effects. For example, you know, if we see the UK go through with legislation that scraps part of the Northern Ireland Protocol, then we are likely to see the EU go through with their threats of retaliation. Now, that could be uh, in terms of Northern Ireland's access to uh, single, the single market, although I doubt that because that has, that has implications for the Good Friday Agreement, but it could be in other ways. And those sorts of war of, of words and, and tit-for-tat trade measures do have spillover effects on diplomacy and the ability of, uh, you know, Boris Johnson to simply pick up the phone and, and work things out with his counterparts. So I, I, I think they're distinct, but to a point. Boris Johnson has led and has been front and centre in terms of the, the European focus on Ukraine. Do you think it was a deliberate attempt to change the narrative? I, it, it, given what is happening with Northern Ireland, I, I, I question that. But I do wonder what do you think his objective was in putting himself front and centre in that European story again? Look, I think on one level, this is something that Boris Johnson genuinely believes in. And, you know, we're, we're all sort of cynical journalists and we're looking for the ulterior motive. But, um, you know, I think he's a student of history. I think he, he recognises this as a 
pivotal moment for European security, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, really the end of this post-Cold War period of relative stability and, uh, uh, you know, an international legal sort of superstructure and institutions that held. I think he recognized that. But he also sees that, you know, Britain is has a role to play that is probably, um, you know, punches above its, its weight in some levels. It, you know, it's, a, it's the second largest arms exporter. It can share weapons. It was arming uh, Ukrainian soldiers, you know, before Russia invaded and training them. So there, you know, there are many ways in which the U.K. can really stamp its authority, um, you know, through supporting Volodymyr Zelensky. And then the third element is there's a personal chemistry streak clearly between Johnson, you know, himself, um, you know, something of a, 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 a communicator when it comes to, you know, reaching people and Zelensky, who's a master at it. So mm. I think that's been an element of, of all of this, too. And Zelensky's popularity and the way he's appealed to the British people. So, yes, there's, there has been a, you know, a knock on effect of, of boosting sort of, you know, perhaps Johnson's profile in some way, although from the midterm elections, we can't say that he got a major electoral boost from that. I think people are still going to vote on domestic issues, on cost of living, um, and and on trust issues. So there's only so much, um, you know, there's only so much kind of benefit Johnson will get domestically from that. Well, to that point, um, the other part of the interview that you guys did was about uh, recession, shrinkflation, inflation, um, and sort of some dire words that he had for that, parity for certain uh, FX crosses. Um, what what was his biggest, what was your biggest takeaway on that in terms of inflation? Yeah, this was so fascinating because he's just written a book um, called The Mystic Hand that basically it's on, it's on central banking and, and the role it's played in the global economy. And, you know, he gives central banks a lot of credit for the innovative tools that helped rescue uh, our economies at the financial crisis. But his main criticism is they kept the easy money going too long. And all of these unconventional monetary tools um, became, uh, you know, a a sort of default and an addiction. And and that has created all of these unintended consequences of making it very hard to fight inflation now. So he talks about the zombification of companies, the um, widening inequalities. So there's just very little headroom. So his message was that the ECB has waited way too long, that inflation Mm -hmm. in Europe... Although it looks very different to the U.S., it's not fundamentally different. If you look at producer prices, if you look at wage contracts, if you look at, um, you know, what's going on with the euro. And so yeah. he thinks that uh, yeah, they've, they've run into problems by waiting too long. Um, really wonderful work. Uh, thank you so much for that. I definitely recommend everyone reads it. The U.K. and the E.U. have two common enemies now. Uh, check that out. Therese Raphael uh, joining us there. Much more coming up. We'll have a lot more on this Bloomberg U.K. launch, a big event. We'll be talking uh, more about what happens to Sterling with John Authors. You can't have a U.K.-centric show without him. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. It and all of the UK. It is 5.30 where you are. I'm here in our New York studios. It's 12.30 right here uh, in the US. I want to welcome everyone to the launch of Bloomberg 
UK. It's a comprehensive look across all platforms of all the events happening in the UK, from economics to social aspects to the companies uh, that thrive in uh, the various industries in the UK as well. There is a new UK digital homepage, which you should definitely uh, be checking out. There's a newsletter, Bloomberg Open can start your day. Um, there's going to be extra podcasts and radio uh uh, events for you, like the cable, and television and video as well. Guy Johnson, apparently, you're launching a new weekly video series, The Bloomberg Breakfast. Uh, yeah, I, I probably won't be involved in that, but I do love breakfast. Fair, so well, I mean, I'm very happy you're to You're listed English, as I'm, such, so you should just I am own very that. happy to enjoy an English breakfast. <laughs> Well, anyway, it's going to be very exciting. Comprehensive coverage, uh, th- hundreds of journalists uh, covering hundreds of companies. So stay with us uh, throughout that. So this is a very special launch day, but we do want to get you caught up on some of the headlines that are happening within the markets. Uh, here is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. And here's what's going on. Finland and Sweden are inching closer to joining NATO in what would be another jolt to the European security landscape following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Finland's highest-ranking Policymakers President Sauli Ninisto and Prime Minister Sanat Marin threw their weight behind an application, and Sweden's government says it is likely to do so in coming days. The World Health Organization says Europe has had more than 2 million confirmed deaths from COVID-19 as the global toll of the world's most deadly infectious disease keeps rising. Natural gas prices surged more than 10% in Europe after Russia reduced supplies to Germany in retaliation for European sanctions over the invasion of Ukraine. Despite all the sanctions, Russia's oil revenues have surged 50% so far this year, even as many refiners have shunned its supplies, pumping about $20 billion a month into Moscow's coffers. BP CEO Bernard Looney says a windfall tax could crimp investment in the UK's energy system, called for a windfall tax have intensified following record earnings from oil and gas majors. While Prime Minister Johnson has not entirely ruled out the move, the government has been vocal about its desire for the industry to boost investment after the energy crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That is the latest from the news desk. Uh, Back to you now, Alex Steele here in New York. Thank you so much. And for those of you who don't know, Charlie Pellet is a UK file. So he's perfectly suited to be part of this show. Yeah, exactly. UK good, file. Exactly. Move me over there. Let we'll we'll let Guy take care of the morning show. I'll pick things up in the afternoon. And so. he truly, truly means that. <laughs> um, well, you also can't have comprehensive coverage of what's happening in the UK without John Authors. Uh, he's senior editor for Markets and Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He's a former chief markets commentator and editor of the Lex column at the Financial Times. His uh, piece every day is must read for anyone in the market. John, thank you for joining us and welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Alex, and uh, welcome back. It's great to hear your hear your voice again. And you as well. It's good to hear you. I was reading you while I was out, so uh, it's a pleasure to chat. Um, you had a piece out which is perfectly timed, and it says Sterling's yeah. drop to dollar parity is a growing risk. All I was reading about was Euro dollar going to parity. Now I have to worry about Sterling too. It's it's, it's conceivable. Yes, uh, it, it obviously would happen after Euro parity, but thankfully as turned out to be a well-timed piece. Sterling has taken another dip today after the GDP data. And if you don't have somebody step in aggressively to stop it, which is what's happened the last time uh, 
the pound approach to parity back in 1985, if you want another historical parallel, then there are a lot of pressures that will uh, that will take things further because the dollar is very strong and there is no obvious support for sterling. Do, do we know whether the British government cares about sterling? Like Sir Bernard Ingham back in the uh, the early 80s yes. uh, may have caused yes. some issues with sterling, which, as you say, uh, took us down to 105, basically taking a, a reasonably sort of laissez-faire approach to it. Are we likely yes. to see any government support this time round? Like, do you think this is something that Boris Johnson and his chancellor and his team care about? I... I doubt that it's something they care about passionately, but might care about if things get much worse than here, than, than they are here. John Major probably lost his premiership over yep. uh, the pounds tanking. Harold Wilson probably lost to Edward Heath in 1970 because of the, the embarrassment of, of having Steve Alley. Um, so you, you do have to be careful. There is uh, as we both know, there is a certain amount of national pride wrapped up in the pounds. There is, it's, it's meaningless, but it just so happens that the British currency unit is bigger than anybody else's. Uh, you know, the, one pound is worth more than one of everybody else's currency. Yep. Uh, if mm -hmm. that changes, people will notice that and it will be uh, embarrassing. It'll be humiliating. And this is a country that only a few years ago voted to... Uh, voted to leave uh, the EU and well, John, where opposition sorry. to the euro is very strong. Does it, it is it sterling weakness led or is it dollar strength led? Because I understand the pride mm. but that clearly is going to yes. make a difference in terms of how much everyone's going to care about it. Okay, it's dollar strength led at, the, at this point and the dollar strength has been there because of uh, because of the Fed hawkishness we all know about for, for a while and uh, it's gaining gaining strength today uh, because the haven demand is there. People really are beginning to get scared about the, the broad markets, and that's intensifying their yeah. pressure upwards on the dollar. However, there is the specific area of sterling weakness, which is that um, people really don't like what the, uh, the Bank of England said last week, that um, saying they were going to hike rates, but that in future they expected in, uh, you know, a recession with inflation going over 10% anyway, was treated as dovish, was treated as you're basically saying you can't, you're basically admitting that you're going to give up. Um, and that's led to a very sharp further fall down. Uh, yeah. Obviously, weakening currency accentuates inflation, so it's a very dangerous circle they're in. But it's hard... The UK is adrift in many ways at this point. It, it, it doesn't have the, the, the uh, doesn't have the link to the EU. It has very serious labour shortages. I expect it. It's yeah. difficult to see how it turns things around. The, the level against the dollar is one thing, and commodities are priced in dollars, so it does matter. Mm. But euro sterling has barely budged. We're trading eighty five now. The average over the last year is 84.78. Isn't that a more yes. useful metric, considering that despite protestations to the contrary, um, the, the EU is slightly closer? <laughs> uh, it's, it, it, it's certainly more important that we do much more trade with the EU than we do with the US. Uh, and the EU is in a similar kind of position to the, the UK, uh, that the... the uh, uh, very great doubts about the ECB's credibility in saying that it's going to be able to uh, you know, leave off uh, from hiking as long as they, they think they're going to, and obviously very serious 
repercussions from from the conflict in Ukraine there. That said, it's given all that I've just said, it is quite impressive that the uh, the pound has managed to weaken as far as it has, given the kind of uh, rate differentials it now has in its favour. That you know, the Bank of England has started tightening. It's been really quite aggressive far more so than the ECB, and that hasn't actually strengthened the pound against the euro. So, But, John, I feel um, like I've I, I read a lot yeah. about the BOE talks tough, but they're not actually like, doing as much. Like, the ECB is a little, I'm sorry, the Fed's behind in their rhetoric, but they're going to they're gonna yeah. do a lot versus, say, the BOE. That's, that is a fair statement, um, which is part of the weakness of the pound. Um, the other thing that is has taken everybody by, by surprise these last few months is how the Fed finally convinced people that they meant what they were saying, with the result mm-hmm. that you see uh, rates, you know, 10-year yields nudging yeah. 3%. And, and that has uh, upset calculations across across the world, as more or less every market report will indicate it at, at, at present. Uh, so, yes, the, yep. the, the, the Bank of England's done more than the ECB, uh, but yes, it's quite right. It's much less hawkish than the Fed and cannot afford to be as hawkish as the Fed. John, um, we're, we're kind of migrating slowly um, away from the UK and into wider <laughs> markets. So let's let's continue yeah. that migration. Um, mm. What have you make of the weight of the price action over the last few days? Uh, people are starting uh, to point towards 2000 as being a useful model. Where are yeah. we in this tech sell off? What is going to happen next? Like how much? I guess the question I'm asking is how much more downside potential is there here? I think well, downside comes from comes from valuation, uh, and so there is quite a lot more. Um, the stock markets still look very, very expensive. Uh, they have been justified on the Tina narrative that bond yields are so low uh, that there's nothing to do but buy stocks for a while, uh, and. Now that that rug has been removed, there isn't any obvious place for them to stop for a while Mm -hmm. because they are so overvalued. I do think it is fair to say that it's a relatively – this is where it is very similar to 2000, is that the selling has been very heavily concentrated in areas that were particularly blatantly overpriced, which was also true of 2000. The S&P barely was barely any worse at the end of 2000 than the beginning, while the NASDAQ – you know went to the moon and back. Um, and that is, uh, so that there is, that is the one very clear point of similarity that was that there was a, a very extreme, reasonably concentrated amount of, uh, amount of uh, speculation driven by the cheap money, you know, from the Greenspan Fed 20 odd years ago and from the pandemic measures this time around. Yeah. Uh, and that speculation is now removing. I think the big reason for concern this time compared to 2000 is uh, if you look at the housing market, that's overvalued too. Sorry, there's noise in the background. So that the, 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 uh, housing is overvalued this time as well, that there are far more assets ready to drop than there were in 2000. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we have inflation this time in a big way, which we didn't in 2000. So, um So also, I want to point out, and this is going to tie into a headline that just crossed, Mm. so that's sort of the bubbly part of it. And then there's also some of the fundamental part. Here's something quite interesting. Twitter's CEO just announced a hiring freeze and other cost-cutting efforts. Um, Part of it's going to be uncertainty while Elon Musk uh, takes the company over, but they're not going to hire new people, and they may actually rescind some offers that are already out. 
And I wonder... Yikes. Exactly, yikes. Is this going to be something that... that, Does that surprise anybody? I, I only say that because... Like Twitter is is from a, from an operational point of view is renowned for being inefficient, and that's well, kind that. of part yes. of part of Musk's kind of stick here is that this is a really badly run company from his perspective. But but I wonder but how have, much of it's mm-hmm. Twitter and how much of this are we going to start to see? I, I, I obviously Twitter certainly has some extremely idiosyncratic specific factors. He said using British understatement, but um, there's. Um, uh, there is a, a, a dribble of, of layoffs. Rocket Mortgage laid, announced some layoffs earlier this this week. It's a little um, little concerning when you think of the, uh, the the scale of the property market. Um, you do see business plans in those kinds of areas beginning to come into question. I mean, most dramatically in the case of Netflix and Facebook earlier this year. But you know, they have been planning on the same rosy assumptions that the market has been pricing them on and if they alter those assumptions if they start to think in terms of uh, actual economic contraction then yes that's that does that does entail laying people off which is you know, a, a, an extremely unpleasant thought yeah um i guess the only kind of silver lining to that is that the labor market looks pretty good right now um We'll see what happens with with these with these. Uh, it's not too good, yes. But but how long that lasts for? We will we will wait and see. John, just mm. just a final kind of, kind of quick question: Are we going to see Are we going to see financial chaos turning into into real economy chaos? Are we going to see that translation happening? Do you think? It's less likely. I mean, if we now with the model of two thousand and eight and Lehman, it, it's less likely than it was then. Uh, because the banks are in a more conservative state. Um, as far as I'm aware, you can imagine crypto imploding and hurting quite a few people, but I'm, I'm not yet clear that that would be any more systemic than right. you know, the bursting of the dot-coms were. Uh, I am rather worried about private equity, um, uh, which obviously relies a lot on, on cheap leverage. They're, I, I doubt it'll be as bad as 0708, but it could happen, yeah. John, great to catch up. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's John Authors joining us on what is happening, A, in the UK, the prospect of parity, uh, pound to the dollar, uh, and also what's happening in these wider markets. Up next, we're going to talk expanding NATO's membership. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. One of the unintended consequences of the war in Ukraine has become the possibility of NATO expanding. It now looks likely that both Finland and Sweden will join the organisation. Today we had Finland's two highest ranking policymakers, the Prime Minister and the President, signalling that their intention was to take their country towards this. We have a formal decision being made at the weekend. Uh, It is likely that Sweden will then follow. Mark Champion joins us now in the studio. Mark, what are the implications of this? Do we is, is is this fairly straightforward? The Russians have threatened a reaction, but are we going to get one? 
Right. I mean, the, the only straightforward thing, I think, is the membership bid itself. Uh, it will be easy. It will be smooth. Um, yep. You know, these are two countries that have already been working very closely with NATO. They're all geared up for it. Um, and, you know, politically, they are, um, you know, the best of the best in terms of, you know, democratic values and all that sort of thing. So uh, that's easy. Uh, the hard part, you know, as you say, uh, this is exactly the opposite of what uh, President Putin uh, was insisting should happen before he invaded Ukraine, demanding as a as a kind of um, uh, you know a, a condition for not invading Ukraine. So now he's done that. Uh, these two countries are bringing NATO closer to his borders, and this is exactly what the Russians are saying. Uh, you know, we're going to have to respond. Uh, we see this as a threat. Um, now, exactly what? they can do in response. Um, we know there's lots of little things they do uh, in terms of testing the airspace, testing, uh, you know, the territorially, the waters mm. and so on. And they can do more of that. They can do cyber attacks and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but in the scheme of things, all of that would seem pretty small beer. So, uh, you know, what exactly at this point Russia can do, uh, we'll find out, but it's not well, not at all clear. I, and it does feel to some extent that Finland and Sweden would have known that. So they might be prepared for any kind of potential pushback from Russia. What does Finland, what do Finland and Sweden do for NATO? Uh, they are a pretty good addition, to be honest. Um, uh, so what you have is uh, two countries with not large but very uh, capable uh, militaries. Uh, Finland has a very large reserve force, uh, which exists fundamentally because of their experience with Russian uh, or rather Soviet invasions in the last uh, century. Um, and, uh, you know, on top of that, you know, just territorially, uh, they kind of uh, embrace the Baltic states, which are the most exposed uh, members of NATO. Uh, and they will bring uh, very significant additional capabilities to uh, the Baltic states, making it much easier to defend them if they were ever attacked. Uh, so, uh, you know, for, for, from NATO's point of view, militarily, strictly militarily, this is clearly a good thing. Um, you know, politically, we will find out because obviously the whole point of NATO is to deter uh, any kind of attack. Uh, so if, if expanding has the opposite uh, effect, then, yep. uh, you know, that's not so great. The question you posed to me as you sat down in the break was, if the Russian military had been more effective in Ukraine, would we have seen this happen? And what do you think the answer to that question is? I, I mean, clearly it's a hypothetical, but I mean, uh, you know, it's an interesting sort of thought exercise as to, you know, what we think is happening here. If you just say, uh, had the, uh, the Russian army just waltzed across Ukraine, um, you know, really sort of underlined the, the image of this sort of really fearsome uh, military machine and, and was just there ready to do something else, would you know, the Finns and the Swedes then say, uh, you know, we, we would like to join NATO. I mean, yeah. they'd have the same motivation to do it, the threat of an attack. But they wouldn't want to poke the bear. But mm. they might be much more worried about what would happen if they if they say that they want to do it. Um, so it's it's just a it's an interesting thought experiment. You know, at the moment, what you have is there is a clear threat. Russia has proved that it's ready to go beyond its borders and attack another uh, very significant uh, country. Um, but at the same time, its military is in real trouble and has been heavily degraded. Uh, and, uh, you know, there may be some what less risk. I wonder how China is looking at this particular change. 
they will be extremely upset, I would say. Um, you know, the, the, the real thing that unites China and Russia and has done for about the last decade, really, uh, is, you know, a common uh, antipathy towards the U.S., uh, an alienation from the U.S., and a desire to see uh, the U.S. military alliances, uh, which are bilateral in Asia, but, you know, collective under NATO in, uh, in Europe, um, to see those uh, degraded and broken up, because they see them as containment efforts, you know, which are really aimed at them. Uh, containing their ambitions, their uh, what they see as their right to a sphere of influence in their immediate area. Uh, so, you know, for for this to happen, and for you know, obviously President Xi and President Putin, they met just before uh, the February twenty fourth invasion at the Winter Olympics in in uh, in Beijing. They had this five thousand three hundred word statement, which had a lot of stuff in it about NATO and about you know the the uh, the uh, their opposition to U.S. Uh, military alliances. And here, uh, you know, clearly, you know, surely Putin would have uh, ex explained to, to Xi what he yep. was about to do. And, you know, she would have hoped uh, that it would have gone right, but it hasn't. And this is the opposite to what he would have liked to see. What, what is the, uh, the, 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 the military applied many of the same command and control structures and how they use troops and how they train those troops and how their various battalions were made up. Do you think the Chinese are going to change significantly in the way that their military is structured as a result of this? Well, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, it's what the the Chinese have been involved in, uh, you know, some very significant military reform, um, but uh, it has not focused on their land forces. So they've focused very, very much on their uh, missile uh, defenses and on their navy and their air force. Uh, so, uh, what the, the the sort of organization of battle, uh, the, the battalion, um, tactical groups, and so on that we're seeing in in Russia, this sort mm -hmm. of land uh, fight with tanks and artillery and so on, it's not what the Chinese were gearing up for anyway. Yeah, Mark. Oh, really great to get your perspective. We do have to leave it there. Uh, Mark Champion uh, joining us. Well, this was the inaugural launch, Bloomberg UK. We hope that you enjoyed listening to The Cable. Please join us tomorrow. I'm Alex Steele in New York with Guy Johnson in London. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. This is Bloomberg.